welcome, welcome, welcome back to Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron J. Hope everyone's staying well, wearing a mask, and practicing social distancing. Yes, I needed to get that off my chest. Well, here we are, week five of the Tara Baker story, and one thing is certain, people are talking. You are all listening. Actually, over 8,000 of you to be exact. And the questions keep pouring in. So... I wanted to begin this episode of season one by answering a lot of listener questions that you've submitted on our Facebook and Instagram at Classic City Crime and to our Gmail, ClassicCityCrime at gmail.com. You had some really thought-provoking questions that I really couldn't move forward without addressing. So after all, we are in this together, right? Now, I contacted some of the Baker family the day before this episode released to get some of their feedback on what you all have been wondering about, and I'm always so grateful for their time and willingness to let me share Tara's story with all of you. Tara Louise Baker, Forever 23, was, as you'll recall, brutally attacked and murdered in her East Side Athens, Georgia home on January 19th, 2001 at 160 Bond Drive. And as you've learned so far, this case really does produce a lot more questions than answers, but answers are coming in in their own unique ways. Let me just say that every single day. So let's dive into some of what all of you asked. One overarching question that you had was whether or not the Baker family ever hired a private investigator or someone from the outside to come in and take a look at the case. Now, many of you have even mentioned shows that might get their hands on the case and help solve it, and I wish it were that easy, truly. Now, here's Tara's mom, Miss Virginia, answering this question about outside help, private investigators, and more. Here she is. Yes, my husband and I really spent an awful lot of time on the phone doing investigation ourselves. We went to Athens many, many times and followed up every lead we could find. And I actually wrote a very long and appealing letter to Henry Lee, who was a forensic specialist, I believe, from Connecticut. And he had been called in on some very famous cases, including the O.J. Simpson case, and I just felt like his talents were immense, and he actually wrote back to me and said that he would be very happy to look into this case, and the charge would be nominal compared to what he normally would uh, charge for doing that. And I went to the police and I said, I have got an offer from Henry Lee to look into this case and I will pay him. And they said only if he reports directly to them and not to us. And I thought that's a little odd since I'm the one paying for the information that they said they would not allow him to have access to anything unless he reported directly to them and not to the family. However, I believe during the time when Courtney Gale was there, they were allowed him to look at some evidence. I don't know if it were just pictures or what, because I think they had talked to him at a conference, and perhaps he was given access to crime scene photos. And I don't really know whatever came of all that. But there were so many people that would come to my home and leave cards stuck in the door or in the mailbox or wanting to look into the case. And I just felt like they were pretty much just looking for money and not. I just didn't trust them much at all. 
So, no, we did not hire another independent. Now, according to his website, Dr. Henry C. Lee has consulted on more than 8,000 criminal cases in 46 countries, including the O.J. Simpson trial and the John Benet Ramsey murder investigation. So I don't think I'm speaking lightly when I say he's very experienced. And I have reached out to Lee for comment, but as of recording time, he had not returned my request for comments or an interview. And you know I'll keep trying because one thing is certain. Though outside help may not have been well received by the 2001 police department, I think that the answers are out there somewhere. The next listener question was an interesting one. What was salvageable from the fire? As in, was the Baker family able to keep anything from the fire to remember Tara by? You'll recall she actually was a huge fan, like me actually, of antiques. So were all of those gone? Was the family able to keep anything? Here's Miss Virginia. My husband and my brother and my son went to Athens, and there was very little that was salvageable. There was a few things like a a photo album that contained pictures of family and friends that was very badly singed and curled and in bad shape, but he brought it home so that we would have it. She did collect nutcrackers and some very old ones, and a few of those survived, but they're all so stained with soot and the smell, I just put them in a box and left them there. And I think there was only one piece of furniture that was able to go to a restorer and be somewhat salvageable, and that can be handed down to Meredith and stay in the family that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was very, very little. She had just bought a beautiful sleigh bed that was completely gone and a liar table that she had next to the bed, and it was completely gone. Mm-hmm. And most of everything in there was just dresser. Everything was gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a small antique cup with violets on it that belonged to her great-grandmother, And it was singed, even though it was porcelain, a little bit of it was discolored, but we brought that home. And one of her little 80 pine nosegays survived, and we put that in the cup, and it's sitting in one of the display cases in our home. There was very little. They brought home everything they could and put a lot of her things in a big box and it's here and we just don't go into it very often. The smell is still so strong. Sister Meredith answers a submitted question next, and this is one that really is a good investigative question. Could this have been the work of a serial killer? Someone who had committed other crimes in the area? Well, it is actually something that was discussed and thrown about to both the family and the media back in 2001. Um, I think it had been tossed around in the past, um, and, and I think it was you and I who had discussed it. Um, uh, a particular individual had been ruled out. Uh, I personally don't think it was because if it had, um, a serial a criminal doesn't just stop in his tracks. And, I mean, it's been 20 years at this point. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think it is a serial killer. And that was one of our hesitations for a while um, if it had been a serial killer um, and criminal justice 
there's this theory that if you stay quiet long enough, someone's going to slip up. They're going to think they got away with it. And we kept thinking, you know, maybe we don't want to say something or maybe we don't want to slip up and maybe we don't want to find out who killed Tara because if we did, that means maybe someone else has died. And we didn't want, obviously, someone else to have to die in order to bring justice for Tara. Mm -hmm. So it's a very... It's a difficult subject. I mean, all of it's difficult, but um, we had discussed it over several years in the past. But I, at this point, like I said, it's been 20 years and no crime as heinous as this has occurred in Athens since then. The laptop, you'll recall, was the only thing stolen from the scene. Now, who knows what it contained, both in the way of content and in the way of DNA evidence. Someone out there was curious about whether or not the family or the police had ever looked into whether or not the laptop was pawned or had anything on it. Now, keep in mind one thing. 2001, it was a much different time in the way of technology and the internet, but both did still exist. And perhaps it wasn't something the good old boys in 2001 at the athens Clark County Police Department were very knowledgeable on or willing to ask for much help on. So here's Tara's sister with some details on this question. One of my family members had suggested that they try to see if someone was currently using the laptop. Uh, Specifically, he said, you know, Tara has sent me emails in the past. You can pull the IP address from the emails and see if someone is using the laptop. If they log in, boom, you've got them. Um, But I just don't know if anyone truly understood the technology that well back then. Same family member was trying to explain to them the concept of an IP address, and they were very old investigators in the beginning. I guess maybe they just didn't understand the technology, but it was frustrating to say the least. And of course, this is all secondhand information uh, coming from me, but that is what I recall. Because of the police department's investigation that I quite frankly believe was flawed from the beginning, you know, not appropriately securing the crime scene, contradictory and later denied words spoken to the family and media, It's no wonder a lot of you wanted to know if the Baker family ever had a private autopsy conducted. Well, here's one thing Meredith noted, that by the time the investigators took back what they said about the present she had left under her fingernails, well, Tara was already buried. And Miss Virginia has a little bit of insight on this, too. It's something she might not have thought about at the time, but also was unaware she could do. I suppose I did not even think about that at the time and did not even know that that would be possible because she was in the custody of the GBI crime lab, is what I was told. And then we had our funeral director go and pick the body up and bring it here. And he just, well, it was sad because I wanted to be able to say goodbye to her. I wanted to see her. They my family said absolutely not mm. and i looked at the funeral director and just out of i guess being naive i asked him if there wasn't something he could do to repair the body and thus for me to be able to say goodbye to my child i couldn't just see burying a box without knowing for sure she was there Mm. And the look on his face let me know that that was absolutely an impossibility. 
Mm-hmm. And then I think for the first time I realized how really horrific it was. But it is hard for a mother to bury a box. I sat there at that funeral home next to that little box, and it it was just impossible. This is really heartbreaking, and it's actually something that's personal for me. I have told you before that I was a apprentice funeral director and embalmer for nearly three years at a local funeral home, and I saw a lot of these tragic cases and saw just how much damage fires and acts of tragedy can do to a body. And some one of the hardest things, y'all, for me to do was to be there or be the one to help tell the family that, you know, maybe it's not a good idea for you to look because I know personally in my own life how important it was for me to see my best friend or to see other loved ones of mine who have passed away. And it really breaks my heart that Miss Virginia never got that chance. But I must say, as someone who worked at a funeral home, it really is sometimes for the best. Now, you remember Kevin Baker, Tara's brother. He was only 10 back in 2001. And though he was so young, I have grown to learn one thing about Kevin. His ears were listening, his eyes were watching, and I think he knows more about this case than one would think for a 10-year-old. In fact, one of you reached out and asked me about this, wanting to know how Kevin, as an adult, feels now about the investigation, the case, and what happened. And it was really good to talk to Kevin on Wednesday night, July 8th, because Kevin's become a friend of mine in all of this. And we caught up the night before this podcast episode was released to discuss his outlook on the case from now a 30-year-old. As a kid, you kind of, well, for me, I've always been an observant one, so I've always kind of kept my eyes open, listened, and watched i think a lot of people especially uh part of the investigation and how they communicate with my parents didn't think i was paying attention when i was um looking back now i'm a little bit you know i've always been raised to never speak ill about police um this is how my parents have always raised us um because they were always there to be good guys you know and i'm not saying that there are people that are not in that athens clark department but Mm. at the time um, severely disappointed. Uh, they would not communicate with my parents at all. My parents had to go up there and pretty much knock their door down to even talk to them. The things that were said to my parents at the time, uh, unfathomable that they would even express that, any type of professionalism at all. I've been in the professional uh, workforce for probably about 12, 15 years now, and I could not get away with something like that. And as sensitive as the subject is, to say some of the things that they have said, especially to the person's mother and parents, absolutely could not get away with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and communi- only communicating through, like, my parents had to submit formal questions through paperwork, and the police would only submit their answers back through paper. And 95% of those questions that my parents asked, their response was, could not answer at this time. Mm-hmm. That, that doesn't tell me anything. I'm, I'm, and I'm, we went through all this paperwork to ask if we could get some information. You're not giving it to us. We've asked if we can get other investigators uh, to take a look at it. Police will not release files. And honestly, I mean, I would much rather and have a lot more respect for that police department if they would just own up and say, you know what, we messed up. It is what it is. Twenty years have passed. A lot of the people that we're here during that time or not longer part of this department, but we messed up royally. And to save face for that department, 
if I was a part of that administration, I would be trying to rectify any situations I could with the Baker family by getting as many leads, bringing as many outside people as I could to try to get this thing split wide open, try to get some answers. Because for 20 years, we've been sitting here with nothing and just being told, well, too bad. You can't get anything because we're still actively looking for it. I can say I'm actively looking for something, and I'm just telling you that just so you get out of my face. And I know that, and I'm pretty sure that's about what they were doing. Now, granted, I'm sure there's a bunch of information that, you know, yes, only the killer would know as far as disclosed information about the wound or about certain things. And I, and I, and I get that part. But the way that it's been conducted has been very poor, very poor indeed. Um, and as an adult looking back now, uh, it's, it's just, it's more than anything, it's just heartbreaking. Um, because at the end of the day, you would hope that when you have a crisis and you reach out to the police or you police are there, that you would feel confident that they would, you know, leave no stone unturned. And that was not the case here. It was more of just cover the stones with a blanket and hopefully it'll disappear and we can move on to something else. Because honestly, I think what happened to Tara and I'm going to be quite frank, what happened to Tara was pretty tragic to the point to where Athens-Clark County was a little bit too bush league for what they had to deal with, and they should have reached out to bigger, I guess you could say, bigger agencies because Athens-Clark County was not prepared for something as gruesome as what happened to Tara. Thanks again, Kevin, for your time and to the entire Baker family. The podcast, y'all, is happening in real time, and the Baker family's willingness to always answer my call, even when it's hard, is something I will really never forget. Now, Tara was a 1L at UGA Law, well on her way to practicing what her mother called happy law, or real estate law. And many former and current UGA Law students have actually contacted me on Instagram and by email about the case, some literally in utter shock that the university and law school has never really discussed what happened to Tara with them. That being said, someone out there was curious as to whether or not the university had started a scholarship to remember Tara, and indeed, they did. You'll remember Katie, Tara's friend and fellow section member in law school who we spoke to in episode two. Now, Katie worked hard to keep Tara's memory alive, and one of those ways was, yes, through a scholarship to honor Tara's life, a strong, intelligent woman who I have no doubt would be a successful attorney today. So we have the Tara Baker Memorial Scholarship, uh, which is awarded to second uh, two L's, second year law students going into their third year, and it is awarded in the summer in between. Um, I award that scholarship um, on behalf of the family. Uh, the scholarship is with UGA itself as part of their overall um, scholarship program, so they control how much can be awarded. Uh, you know, they make sure it's well-funded and that it will last. Uh, so I don't do any of that. Uh, I just receive the scholarship applications and then award from there. Um, we, and by we I mean the graduating class of 2003, uh, used our class gift as an opportunity to begin the funding of the scholarship. Um, and then it was finally endowed 
a few years later, which it just takes time, you know, scholarships have to get to a certain level so that you can award off of the interest. Uh, that is how they continue on, you know, forever, hopefully. Um, so we started awarding, uh, or I started awarding the pro the scholarship probably back in I want to say 2005. Um, yes, 2005 sounds right. Then of course there was the economic depression in, that began in 2008. So we were not able to award for a couple of years, uh, but since the early 2010s, uh, the scholarship is going strong. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in fact, I just awarded three scholarships. A couple of days ago, uh, every year now we're doing about three thousand dollars, and then splitting that over three students. Uh, it could be one student for three thousand, but we get so many applications, it just uh, it just doesn't feel right to single it down to one person. We want to spread the the memory and the joy, and and of course the fiscal help to as many people as possible. Thanks to all of you for continually submitting your questions, and please, please continue to do that. We've answered some of those questions now, and like I've said before, this case often produces more questions than answers, and I actually think that's okay, because in fact, the more we talk, the more we question, the more we investigate together, the better chance we have of bringing true justice for Tara. When we come back, we'll get to some of my even bigger questions. What the hell happened with the investigation at Fawn Drive in 2001? What could have been done differently when it comes to putting out the fire and maybe the subsequent fire investigation? Well, I found one of the nation's top experts and arson investigators who will share his insight on these very questions. Tom's expert opinion is next. We'll be right back. All right, I'm here with Jarrett Man Martin, Athens, Georgia's second favorite realtor. Now, did I say that right, Jarrett? Realtor? Well, if you are a refined Southern woman and are saying it incorrectly, it's realtor. But uh, yes, you did pronounce it correctly. Okay, okay, good to know. So, Jarrett, one thing listeners have been asking me about you is if you've ever sold a, quote, murder house. Well, surprisingly not, uh, but I have sold many unique properties and encountered unique situations, for sure. We often have clients and aging parents who need to go into assisted living or who sadly have passed away and their homes are filled with a lifetime of possessions and sometimes a lifetime of deferred maintenance. That's where the Athens Georgia Homes team with Keller Williams Realty Greater Athens comes in and helps clients prepare their home for sale by sorting through household treasures, getting the right contractors, and completing the job with professionalism and care. Give me a call at 229-869-5734 or visit online at www.athensgorgiahomes.com. All right, welcome back, and thanks so much for staying with me this far. Now, this next interview has probably, outside of the Baker family, of course, been one of the most interesting and informative interviews I've conducted. Let me introduce you to my next guest. Well, no, better yet, let me allow him to do the talking. Well, what we do is uh, forensic fire investigation, uh, fires and explosions, um, investigate them forensically to see if we can determine, one, where the origin is, and secondly, if we can determine the origin, then we also examine the origin to see if we can determine the cause. Uh, there's several different aspects of both of those, but uh, that's, in a nutshell, that's what we do, um, <clears throat> and anything that's related to that as well. We uh, are hired by uh, insurance firms as well as 
uh, product manufacturers at times, and uh, and also uh, attorneys that are representing any of those aspects. Gotcha. Do you ever work directly with uh, police departments or anything like that? Well, my background is from law enforcement in the mm-hmm. fire service, and then uh, my son, he, he hasn't ever worked with those, either one of those entities, but um, his is more academic, and now he's in the forensic side in the field as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I on occasion still get called to either one assist um, prosecutors and cases that are ongoing in their jurisdiction, mm-hmm. or uh, or I get um, asked by a defense counsel to look at an investigation and see if there's uh, anything his the defendant uh, needs to have an expert as well. Tom Sr. is no stranger to these types of investigations either, so I found him to not only be a key part of my own understanding of this investigation, but I consider him to be highly credible, and I hope you do too. And have you testified in a lot of court cases over the years? I have. Now, I know along the way that I and many of you have had huge questions about this fire on Fawn Drive that was more detailed in Episode 3, but what could have been done differently and what should have been done and so on? There really is a lot to unpack here. Now, I asked Tom one key thing. What should firefighters be looking for or do when they first arrive to a scene like the one at Fawn Drive on January 19th, 2001? Well, first of all, they they have a job to do, and that's, you know, put out the fire um, <clears throat> and try to, one, see if there's property that they're going to be able to save, or two, is there a life involved? Is someone inside the building? And if so, then they have to effect a, a rescue and do so and try to keep everybody safe. And also, if the uh, person has succumbed to the fire, then also is there any kind of... Um, first aid rescue efforts that can be instituted and, and, you know, revive the patient. Uh, If there's not, and it's, you know, a a death scene, then they have to uh, keep in mind that there's going to be a subsequent investigation in most cases. I want to insert some big classic city crime insider news here. I recently was digging around in some old newspaper files and I stumbled upon one sentence that said that the fire department released a report back in 2001 before the ACC police department even knew they had done it, which I'm sure didn't go over very well. But anyway, after filing another open records request, guess what? The Athens-Clark County Fire Department did release that report to me. And there's one huge update I want to give all of you, and I think it's big confirmation for us here in this podcast. The firefighters do report in the incident report. I'm looking at it right now. Second sentence, the doors on the house were what? Locked. And that forced entry was from the firefighters who arrived on the scene that day. Now, isn't that huge news? I want to tell you, I now 100% believe that Tara Baker's home did not have forced entry. Roommates agree. Her sister agrees. Her mother agrees. And now it seems that an official report agreed too. Now, this would indicate one of two scenarios for me. And that is that either Tara knew her killer or she opened the door willingly not knowing what or who, rather, was on the other side. 
All right, back to my interview with Tom now. I was curious about whether or not there were steps that could have been taken by firefighters to preserve evidence if there was an indication that someone could have been home while this fire was raging. For example, Tara's car was in the driveway and the door we now know was locked. So wouldn't this indicate to people arriving on scene that someone might be inside? Now, of course, I cannot speak for what went through firefighters' heads that day, and I really do hope to be able to talk to one of them soon, but it's a question worth asking, so I did just that, and Tom had some really, really interesting insight on this. I would say several different tactics to go through. Um, One, if it is an active fire and it's a large fire and you know that there's somebody inside the building, um, all efforts to rescue that person are expended. if you know that it's going to be a recovery and the fire can still be fought, then you try to, um, if the origin is not, and the fire growth is away from the <clears throat> victim area, then um, you try to leave that area alone and protect it and as, as best you can. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's one where you know, the fire is in the area where the decedent is, then you have to um, extinguish the fire. And in doing so, you know, that's inherently destructive, but you don't want to, as much as possible, disturb the the body. Um, The body can be, uh, the scene of the the area where the body is can be processed once the fire is out. Uh, I worked for the state fire marshal in Texas for many years. Uh, we worked an awful lot of uh, death scenes. So there becomes, in actuality, two different investigations. He went on to detail now what happens on the scene or should happen once there is confirmation that there is someone deceased inside the home. I arrive on scene, and there's it's a death scene. Then my first order of business is to determine the origin of the fire. If there's a victim and it's a deceased victim, then my first order of business changes. My first order of business is to investigate the death scene mm-hmm. and and see is there evidence that's still there. Evidence will much evidence will survive um, knives, guns, bullet casings, uh, extended rounds if it passes through a body uh, can all be recovered in a fire scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things you asked about was DNA. Can DNA still be obtained? Well, yes, it can. But a lot of that depends on the scene itself. Uh, the scene is the variable, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, <clears throat> if there's DNA to an actor, that sometimes is more difficult. But in many occasions, uh, the actor will leave behind items. Uh, I have found driver's licenses, wallets. Um, in the scene after the fire, after we ex- ex- excavated all the fire debris in and around the body, uh, found, you know, of course, weapons uh, and um, expended rounds once once the projectile, if the projectile passes through the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, the body itself is, uh, is evidence. Um there's going to be an autopsy, or there should be an autopsy that's requested. The autopsy itself is going to give the investigator uh, a lot of different items of evidence and or clues 
uh, as to who the actor may be or what kind of weapon did the actor use? Did they shoot him or was it a stabbing? Uh, if there is a, if it's a shooting, what kind of weapon is it? Is the bullet, the projectile still in the body? If so, then it's recovered. Now, the next question is one thing we've talked about in probably nearly every episode lately, and that's DNA evidence. And how much does a fire really damage? Does it destroy everything? Well, as Tom quite frankly put it, no, it doesn't. Many, many, many people believe that um, the fire will destroy everything and it will destroy the body when, when in effect it doesn't, mm-hmm. uh, most of the time. Uh, if you have, you know, things will happen to the body uh, just from exposure to the heat, and I'm sure you've seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so things will occur. Um you know, years ago, um, people used to think there was meaning that you could apply to a pugilistic stance of a body after the fire was put out. You know, now we know that's not necessarily true. It's just the effect of the that the fire has on a particular torso, how it's lying and the exposure to the heat as it's approaching the body. All those things uh, play a, uh, an effect on how uh, what kind of effects the fire investigator may see. Um, you know, we, in the state of Texas, when we would get a request to come to a, a fire scene where there was a known fatality and the victim was still inside the building, uh, a lot of times they were asking us, you know, should we get the body out or should we leave it? We would always tell them, if at all possible, leave the body. Because... Mm-hmm. Uh, if it was moved, then we stood the chance that we were going to lose uh, some evidence. Now, in this case, as you can only imagine, with the firefighters responding, water damage was involved in Tara's case and many arson investigations, and it's something that Tom's very familiar with seeing. And he says there's actually ways that firefighters, if trained appropriately, can do things to preserve the crime scene while still extinguishing the fire. Well, yes, if if the firefighting crew is using straight streams, then obviously that's going to damage um, a lot of things within the room. It's going to knock things around. It's going to, it's going to damage the structure. Not the structure, but it's going to damage the scene. So they can switch to a, a fog pattern or a fog pattern, and they can use that. They can reduce pressure. Uh, and, you know, if they, if they have the fire knocked down, they can reduce pressure and then uh, make sure that they're not spraying things around on the, on the floor or, on, or in the scene itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are some preventative measures that they can take from a firefighting effort if they have the idea that uh, this has the potential of being a crime scene. Now, you'll recall that I mentioned the scene had firefighters and others in and out of it for some time, according to sources then and now. And Tom says securing the scene in an appropriate way is vital. Keep in mind, he has no direct knowledge of Tara's case and is speaking to what his research and experience has led him to believe and know. Yes, immediately the scene needs to be secured. Uh, And only essential personnel and the, the firefighters have to keep watch on the building to see if it rekindles. Uh, provided there's no rekindle, then no one needs to enter the building until such time as the investigators do so. Uh, it needs to, it's like any death scene. You don't want anybody inside the area 
except the investigator who's going to be processing the the area. Mm-hmm. And and you know um, that's a very thorough uh, approach, a methodical approach, and uh, in which you're documenting everything as you can. And as you enter the building, you actually begin at the edge and work your way to the body, and then you work from the body out of the way back to the edges. Um, <clears throat> and you actually process the body its, itself as evidence. As you and I both know, technology, science, training, it's all changed a lot since 2001. And Tom has seen these changes in his field. And one thing that still bothers me truly, and I've said it to the family, to Tom and others, maybe if Tara's case had happened today, in today's time, with today's technological advances, and with a police department ready and willing to tackle this from head on, maybe something might be different. Well, fire investigation, I began fire investigating, or investigating fires in 1982. And between, from then till now, fire investigation has changed a great deal. Um... Nowadays, um, fire investigations are a um, a forensic discipline. Uh, it is a science-based uh, inquiry, or it should be. Uh, it follows a certain methodology. Uh, the National Fire Protection Association has a guide that is produced. It's called 921, the Guide to Fire and Explosion Investigation. Um, <clears throat> And it has a technical committee that puts together, uh, through a course of uh, consensus, uh, the methodologies. And, and it's about a 25-year-old document, so it's evolved, and it evolves every three to five years. Uh, it used to be three. Now, I think it's, if my information's changed, uh, correct and hasn't changed today, <laughs> then it's going to go on a five-year cycle, if I understand correctly. But... In all years past, it's been every three years, it undergoes a revision. It has a technical committee that oversees it, and that technical committee receives um, suggestions from the discipline at large from around the world on things that uh, technicians and investigators and scientists and engineers all think that should be added, changed, deleted, uh, modified in some way, and they're able to write their suggestions and submit them, and then uh, every single one of those is evaluated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I happen to sit on that technical committee, so does my son Tommy. And at our last meeting, we had in excess of a thousand submissions. Wow! And we evaluated every one of them, and. And if it has merit, then an individual investigator or technician, scientist, engineer out here in the world working can actually change the document. Mm -hmm. If the technical committee sees that their recommendation is valid, it's substantiated with good science, then it can change something. And there are always changes. Mm -hmm. And they may even be minute and small, but sometimes they are major revisions. And um, and that's the guide that fire investigators use to investigate fires across the country. What it, we what it should do is uh, lead to more science-based fire determinations. 
Remember, though, in 2001, this was a huge case that was so much bigger than the ACCPD's ability. And for some odd reason, they were reluctant to ask for the help of people like Tom. Now, Tom and I talked for over an hour, and our conversation also went into some interesting things he's seen in his career. And there was one story that was so fascinating that I had to share with you. And I will tell you, it doesn't really give much insight to what happened to Tara, but it does show you just how interesting Tom's line of work can be. Take a listen to this, because I'll bet you've never heard anything quite like it before. Oh, we had a, <laughs> this is kind of an interesting case. It was one that one of my deputies did. But there was a vehicle rollover off of a Texas highway, and uh, the, the vehicle was on fire. Texas Highway Patrol responded to it. Uh, something didn't look right, so they called our investigation, our, one of our investigators, and one of the marshals went out there, and she determined that uh, the vehicle fire was in, in uh, set fire was incendiary. And um, with, within the vehicle, there was what the only thing left of the body was about 14 pounds of uh, skeletal remains, of which was the backbone and mm-hmm. pelvic girdle. Um, there was an autopsy that was done on the remains, which wasn't much, but there was enough. Uh, the pathologist was able to determine that the the body had been deceased for a period of about two years. And what it ended up being, and then we found other evidence within the vehicle, uh, chains, rings, some other personal items, and everybody thought it was one particular person, which was a male, um, a a local um, guy that had many occasions to have issues with the local law enforcement Mm -hmm. and uh, and narcotics related, and everybody thought that the decedent was him. Well, at the autopsy, they found out that the decedent, as I said, was two years deceased and was female. Wow. And as it turned out, it was a, a stolen body from a grave, and it was an elaborate attempt to try to fake a death of a person that was still living and intending to go to Florida and start a new life there. Tom Seniors had a long career, one he's grateful for, and that I'm really honored he took the time to speak with me about. So feel like we've clarified a lot this week? Well, I feel that way, but there's always more, isn't there? The Baker family has really survived so much. The murder of Tara, investigations that led to nowhere, promises, contradictions, leads from every angle, and more than you can really even begin to imagine. Now, you see, Tara Louise Baker died on January 19th, 2001, but legally, on paper, get this, she wasn't declared dead for 10 years after the fact. Can you imagine the further pain this put on her mother, Virginia, and stepfather, Lindsay? 10 years, I think it was, before we got a death certificate, and that came from writing to the governor. And it... Meredith had mentioned that it seems the solution that was reached at that time was one that could have been reached for the past 10 years. Absolutely. We kept having problems with accounts of hers being open, still people using, or one of them was a phone that was in her name, it was in the apartment and people kept using it, and then we would get, you know, overdue bills, but it was in some, somebody else was using it. And we couldn't cancel any of these things because we didn't have anything saying she was dead. The fight for Tara's death certificate and what it might contain next time on Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron J. 
Thanks for tuning in. Classic City Crime is hosted by me, Cameron J, co-produced and designed by Kyle Kazaya. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Classic City Crime. Sign up for our Classic City Crimes insider list and learn more about this case at ClassicCityCrime.com. For story tips on the Tara Baker story, email us at ClassicCityCrime at gmail.com or call our tip line at 706-534-0025.